Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 74 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And uh, we find ourselves in the Psalms. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Want to, as we're turning to Psalm 74, want to remind you, uh, in case you uh, attend here in the evening but not in the morning, that uh, our next Israel trip is planned for this time next year. If you want more information on that, you can pick a flyer up out at the information counter in the fellowship hall. In Psalm 74, we have a lamentation, and a lamentation is really just a song of sorrow, and it's a lamentation over the consequences of sin. And as we're going to see in just a moment, as we get into the psalm, the psalm describes a, a terrible, terrible destruction of Solomon's temple. And uh, we know from Second Kings and Second Chronicles that Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he had he conquered uh, Israel or Judah rather and Jerusalem three separate times, and, uh, and in the course of that, utterly laid waste to the land. And the part of those uh, three conquests in, involved the destruction of the temple. Now, Asaph is identified as the author of this contemplation. You see in the title there. Now, it couldn't have been the Asaph of David's time because the destruction of the temple occurred long after uh, David was off of the scene and had gone on to uh, glory. And so uh, it has a couple of things that could mean that this Asaph was a descendant of that Asaph, named after him and uh, so many generations down the line, or could have been the Asaph from David's time who was... uh, uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit to see the future destruction of the temple, and he describes it with the kind of graphicness that God can give as he would give a vision related to that. We do know that Asaph is described in the Scriptures uh, as being a seer and so, or a prophet, so there, it's not uh, at all out of uh, the question. Now, this psalm is a, uh, a lament by a very, very godly man over the unnecessary destruction of the temple due to the refusal of God's people to repent of their idolatry, repent of their rebellion against God, despite the fact that God had been warning them uh, for a very long time that judgment was coming. Uh, Jeremiah ministered, uh, uh, had a ministry of 40 years of warning of the coming judgment, but nobody heeded him. We don't have a, a record in Jeremiah's 40 years of ministry, not to the pagans, not to the Philistines, but to God's people who were completely immersed in idolatry and rebellion against God. We don't have a record of a single convert, not one of them, turning away from their sin in repentance uh, to the Lord. And so... This passage, uh, Psalm 74, really graphically illustrates uh, a wonderful proverb, chapter, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, that declares the way of the transgressor is hard. And it's good to be reminded of that. I don't know who in the whole wide world almost is uh, still warning people that the way of uh, the transgressor, the deliberate rebellious person against God is hard. Because sin, rebellion against God, these are kind of uh, hip things. They're part of the popular culture. It's like you earn your stripes, you know, for being counterculture or whatever, um, progressive or whatever it might be by blaspheming God, denying His existence, violating all of His laws and all. And so uh, God steps. These things are romanticized by the culture. And so we need these reminders in the Word of God that the way of rebellion to God is a hard way. And there's a lot of heartache that comes with that. They never show it in the movies. They never show it on the television shows or in the music. It's all just, you know, do all the drugs your body can handle and have all the sex that it 
it can handle and, you know, give yourself to seeking after uh, all of these things and wealth and fame and all of these things at whatever cost to your dignity and your reputation and all. And then they never show the end of the life, how broken it is and how much regret is there. And so we need these reminders and the Word of God has it. Well, the psalmist writes and he says, Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger uh, smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And so uh, Judah is cast off by God. Uh, Asaph has that sense of that. They are in the doghouse because of their idolatry. And then he begins to describe then the actions of their enemies. And again, it seems historically to match uh, the actions of the Babylonian army once they uh, defeated Jerusalem and then went into the temple then to desecrate and destroy it. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. So those of us who have been kind of going all the way from Genesis to this point, uh, we remember, I mean, the beauty of uh, the temple, Solomon, the gold, the wood, the unbelievable uh, wealth that was poured into that to speak of the glory of God. And the language that is used here is so graphic that you almost feel like you're in the holy place right in the temple watching them uh, commit the destruction against the temple. It's very, very uh, graphic language. Your enemies, your enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. And so you see these very seasoned warriors that are part of, of the Babylonian army. They now have come not only into the center of Jerusalem, but into the center of what it represents, the worship of Israel. They're roaring in their defeat, the boasting, the voices, the everything that's going on. They set up their military banners for signs. They've carried all of that uh, into the holy place and the holy of holies. And they seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees as they begin to destroy the uh, temple. It, 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 it's like witnessing a lumberjack in the middle of a forest, only uh, horrifyingly uh, different. I mean, a lumberjack uh, fits in a forest. There's a reason for it. But you have the refined environment, the finished product of the temple, and here they are destroying it, just uh, throwing these axes around in a way that, uh, uh, that a lumberjack would. And now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They made quick work of it, and then, as if that wasn't destruction enough, they have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground, and they said in their hearts, let us destroy them all together. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. And of course, that was the way that things went in uh, ancient times. You wouldn't just kind of defeat the people and subjugate the people, but you would also then take their objects of worship and uh, destroy them as a, as a kind of witness to the fact that our God is bigger than your God and our God is better than your God and so forth. Uh, the only reason that the Babylonians were able to uh, defeat the southern kingdom of Judah at all and access the temple at all is that God had departed the, from the temple long before. The idolatry became so great in the southern kingdom of Judah and here were the people, they were engaged in idolatry. They've got all of these idols in their home that they're worshiping and they love God, all of this sin that they love God more than God. And yet they felt they were okay with God because they still went to temple every week or every morning. And, uh, and so God came to a point where he simply departed from the temple and that I think Isaiah describes that as, as the Holy Spirit departing the Shekinah glory from the temple, going over the Mount of Olives and out into the wilderness. God couldn't take the hypocrisy anymore. He had departed from it a long time before. It was just a building that 
uh, ought to have spoken of him, but he wasn't uh, participating in any way, again, because of the sin and the hypocrisy uh, of the people. And so this is why they were able to uh, destroy in the way uh, that they did uh, destroy. He says, we do not see... uh, and he begins to cry out to the Lord, how long is it you're going to allow this to go on? Why do you allow this to go on? We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. And so they begin to, he begins to cry out to the Lord, how long? And he, his complaint in verse 9 is, relates to the silence of God toward them. And this is a very... Um, It's an important lesson, and it's a sobering lesson. It is a valuable thing to have God speak to us. Even if he speaks to us rebuke, or even if he speaks to us in a way that chastens us or disciplines us, there is something harder than his rebuke uh, for a child of God, and that is if he goes silent on us because of sin. Now, God can go silent on us, in order to nurture and develop faith. Because we can get this thing where we want to go into prayer, get a feeling from God, get a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge from God, and that is our assurance of the fact that He loves us, that He's with us, that He's active and present and current in our lives. And sometimes the Lord can be manifesting that in our lives, pull away from it for a time, and then so that we go back to believing what he thinks about us and all based upon his word and not something that he's doing at the moment in our life. I remember when I was a new Christian, I, um, a relatively new Christian, there's a Calvary pastor, I could name his name, and almost all of you uh, would know it. Don't you hate that when people do that to you? I know his name and you don't. ha, ha. But I remember him talking about, and he really choked up, and he broke down in the pulpit, and he talked about how for a period of two years he did not feel the Lord at all. I mean, you get behind the sacred desk, uh, 104 uh, weeks of the year, multiple times during the week, and you aren't feeling anything from God. I mean, that's a deep trial. That's why he broke down and started to weep a little bit related to it. But God was teaching him. It wasn't discipline in his life. God was teaching him about walking by faith, faith based upon the Word of God. But here's a situation where it is because of their disobedience. And if God speaks to us and His Word to us, even tonight, is He speaks to us to repent of idolatry, to repent of sin... And we don't do that, but we expect him to continue to speak to us about other areas of our life and, and, uh, and to speak to us on the basis of what we choose and we're going to accept and obey or not obey. The Lord looks at that many times and just says, I won't play that game. I'll go silent on you altogether until you so value my word that you will appreciate it, whether it's in the form of encouragement or in the form of rebuke and a call to repentance. And so um, this is a miserable place to know God is not talking and he's not talking because of my sin. But a valuable lesson is learned even in that place. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? How long are you going to let these pagans do this? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why? So he asks how long. Now he asks why. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Now, in the Scriptures, when it talks about God's right hand, most of us are right-handed in the room. So your right hand or your right arm is your strong arm. So that's the arm of your power. So he's calling on God to pull out his right arm, kind of got a Napoleon thing going on, or we would say God's got his hands in his pocket. He's not doing anything. He's got all this power, all this strength, and he's just letting this go on. So he's calling on God uh, to demonstrate his power and bring an end to all of this. And then he declares uh, his recognition that he knows that it would be effortless for God to do that. And he begins to speak of God's great acts of power 
uh, in their past as the nation of Israel. For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave his food to the people inhabiting in the wilderness. You broke open the fountain in the flood. You dried up the mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. He's created the day and night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And so, God, how long and why when it would be so easy for you to take uh, care of this? And then he uh, speaks a final cry uh, to, uh, to the Lord uh, related to his uh, to be gracious toward his people. He said, remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. In other words, Lord, we deserved it, but now your name is involved here. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy Praise your name. And so, again, a call upon God to act for the sake uh, of his people, not for their righteousness, but just out of his grace. And then this final plea for God to judge uh, uh, their enemies. Arise, O God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies, the tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Lord, don't forget what it is that they have done here in your sanctuary and among uh, your people. And so God ultimately does answer this prayer, this lamentation, and uh, he does bring judgment upon the Babylonians, but only after he allows the uh, children of Israel and Judah be taken captive by the Babylonians for seven year, 70 years into captivity and then to be restored once again uh, to the land. And so he answers the prayer only when Judah is finally willing to repent of their wickedness that took them 70 years in Babylon. It's a fascinating cure that God had in all of this. I only laugh because I can... We all understand that on some level. But uh, Babylon was, was like the Toys R Us of idolatry. I mean, they were, the, they were the kingdom of idols. And so God essentially said to the children of Israel, you like idols? You want to worship idols? I'll send you to the land of idols. I'll send you to a place there on every street corner, there in every house. You won't be able to escape them. I'll send you to where you, you'll have so much of idolatry that it'll make you sick. And it's interesting that the children of Israel, when they went to Babylon, it was idolatry everywhere. It did cure them of their idolatry. The children of Israel would sin in many other ways in the remainder of their history, but they would never return to idolatry the way that they did prior to the Babylonian captivity. And sometimes God does that. It's just like, here's this thing we want. Here's this idol. Here's this area of disobedience. God says, you want that? All right, you can have it. In fact, I'll put you in bondage to it. I'll let you have it until it's coming out of your nose. And then finally we get into that place where, all right, God, deliver me from it. I thought I wanted, a, 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 you know, wanted it and could control it and measure it in my life so that it would be a pleasurable kind of side to my life. Now I don't want anything to do with it. And the upside, it's not an altogether bad thing when God allows that to happen in our lives, to be taken bondage to the sin that we kind of treat as a pet and we protect in our lives because ultimately we come to hate it for the destructive thing that it is and we see it the way that God sees it and it can cure us of ever wanting to engage in that sin for the rest of our lives. And, of course, that is a very, very valuable lesson. 
Psalm 75 is an encouragement that God is one day going to cut off the power of the wicked and he is going to exalt the righteous. The psalmist again, Asaph says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. All of creation, all around us, all of this speaks of the fact that God is uh, near. And then in beginning in verse 2, God then begins to speak through the psalmist and he warns the proud and the wicked that he is coming to judge. He said, when I choose the proper time. Now that's worth underlining in your Bible. I'm not telling you to. But it's worth considering. I'm, I'm backpedaling now. But it's worth noting forever in our, in our minds and whatever we have to do to our Bible to remember it. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Righteous judgment is coming to this world, but it will come in the time that God chooses. Now, when you are a persecuted, righteous person in the world, surrounded by wickedness, then every moment that God delays in bringing His righteous judgment upon the wicked feels like He's waiting too long. But the psalmist tells us, and it's an important lesson for us, that judge, the fact that judgment hasn't landed isn't because God isn't aware. It isn't because God is unconcerned or that God doesn't care about the rise of wickedness. It simply means that he is waiting for the right time to judge the wickedness of the wicked. When I choose the proper time, I counsel him all the time on, on his, this issue of timing, but he chooses. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. And so it is coming. Judgment is coming. The earth and its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly, Selah. Now that's an interesting verse, verse 3. Because what the psalmist is saying, what God is saying actually through the psalmist, is that uh, at this time wickedness is so prevalent on the scene that the foundation of the nation, the moral, the right and wrong, definition of, of good and bad, all of this is in play, uh, much as we see in our own nation where there is this very uh, rapidly advancing redefining of uh, what is good to be bad and what is bad to be called good. Well, that's playing with the foundation of a nation. It's also to play with the foundation of an individual life. And again, I'll go back to the media because it's such a powerful influence in our culture. You have the video games, you have the music, you have uh, the, the different movies and all, and nothing's neutral in the world. Nothing's neutral in the world. It's all got a message. It's all got an agenda. It's all intended to conform us into the image of someone, the creator of that something, for their values to be superimposed upon uh, us. And, and so there's this movement to try and do that. And here, as God is speaking, is a place where wickedness has arisen to such a place that morality, his morality, uh, his definitions of good and right and these things are in danger of being dissolved. And the Lord says, I will not let that happen. I will set up its pillars firmly. God says, I will step in and I will... Uh, not allow uh, that witness of myself uh, to be uh, destroyed. And so God has established a moral or order for the world, and even when it's on the ropes, it's never going to be allowed to ultimately be destroyed. God will always push back evil and reestablish it. And, of course, that's the history uh, of the world. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift your horn on high and do not speak with a stiff neck. And so, what's this whole horn thing? So, 
when you see it's a it's a um, the use of uh, an illustration from nature where you see an animal who has a horn. Uh, it's not all animals have a horn, so when you got it flaunted, I guess. And so you see in the animal kingdom where a rhinoceros or an elephant or whatever has a horn and they kind of get in a place, they will lift up their horn to speak about their power and to warn against anyone coming against them. And, and so he's speaking uh, to the wicked related to this. It speaks of their power and God is warning uh, the, the wicked uh, not to trust in their power and not to be rebellious against him. And then the psalmist comes in and he declares... Uh, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. In other words, God is, uh, the psalmist is declaring here and reminding uh, the wicked of God's absolute authority. And this, this passage here is wonderful on a lot of different levels, verses 6 and 7, but it really speaks to the, um, the sovereignty of God, the fact that He is almighty, the providence of God, the fact that He overrules everything for His, His purposes. And so no, and the idea is that no one can successfully resist what it is that He is uh, doing it also has tremendous application. Exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge; He puts down uh, one and He exalts the other. Fabulous lesson, uh, ministry lesson for sure, and and a tremendous warning against trying to exalt myself into a position, perhaps in the body of Christ that God hasn't called me to. And all that does is, like Jesus said in the parable, of where you sit, seat yourself at the highest place at the table, and then the master of the feast comes in and says, what do you, who do you think you are? Go sit at the end of the table, and then you've got to walk down to the lowest part of the table in front of the whole crowd. And, and so the Lord gives these positions. He gives whatever calling He gives to different people. That's what He does. He can't be overruled. You can't, and the wonderful thing I think about it too is you can't be overlooked. If God doesn't care, what, matter what kind of a background you've come from, it doesn't matter uh, what your liabilities are, what you can't do, what you don't know, if God is going to exalt you into a position of influence for Him, whatever that might be, in an apartment complex or in a church or wherever it might be, He's going to do that and nobody can resist that. And so, but God is sovereign, He's in charge, and not the wicked of the world, and He'll have the final say. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and this cup represents God's judgment, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, uh, speaking of the fact that it's very, very powerful, herbs have been added to the wine to make it even more potent, and he that is God pours it out, surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. And so when it talks about the dregs, that's like pouring a bottle of wine or emptying out uh, you know, some kind of a wooden uh, cask of wine, and at the end of it, at the bottom of it, there's the sediment at the bottom. In other words, by the time you hit the sediment, you've, you drank everything. And what God is saying is that this judgment that He will pour out on the boastful and the wicked, it won't be like an optional thing for them. Yes, I'd like a little judgment. No, I wouldn't like a little judgment. They will drink all of it, and they will drink it all the way down uh, to the last drop. But I will declare forever, the uh, psalmist praises the Lord uh, for this truth that God is going to judge the wicked I will declare forever and I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. And so uh, it's beautiful to realize here is the psalmist. He praises the Lord that the righteous judgment of God is one day going to come upon the wicked. And, uh, And so God's judgment is a praiseworthy thing. Sometimes people say, oh, no, I don't think that God should judge the wicked. And uh, I don't think, and then, you know, then we go home to our gated community. We don't live in a part of the world where they might come and just burn you and your whole family down in your house that night. 
So we think we get a little self-righteous until you get into a place where the whole neighborhood or the whole city or the whole state or the whole nation is run by the wicked. And then the fact that God is a judge and He will judge wickedness, that becomes music to your ears. Otherwise, wickedness is going to prevail without God stepping in and doing that. All of the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. And so, in response to the psalmist's praise here, the Lord repeats His promise to judge the wicked and then also to exalt the righteous as they uh, deserve. And so God emphasizes in the psalm that that is a sure thing, that is always going to be what happens. You see the wicked, you see a wicked individual in your family, a wicked individual in the neighborhood, a wicked person on a national scene or on a local scene or whatever it is, and you see that wicked person, you can look at them and you can say, judgment is coming to that person apart from their repentance. There is no future in wickedness. The future lies with the righteous, and so that's intended to be a great great encouragement to the righteous that God will deal with wickedness in His proper time, and we're to stay faithful until that proper time. Again, the future lies with the righteous. Psalm 76 is a psalm that teaches us that God has the power to make even the wrath of man to praise Him. And the most likely context of this particular psalm, Psalm 76, is uh, recorded in Isaiah chapter 37 where uh, it's recorded that during uh, the, an Assyrian siege that was laid uh, upon Jerusalem, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers laid siege to the city of Jerusalem with the intent of conquering the city, destroying the people inside, destroying the city. And... Uh, and uh, during the time of the reign of, of Hezekiah, and then that army, that great army, Assyria was a fearsome uh, world-ruling empire at the time. These were the most hardcore troops in the whole world at the time, absolutely ruthless and bloodthirsty, and God dispatched or He destroyed that army in one night by supernaturally through the use of just a single angel. Utterly wiped out overnight. One, they went to bed one night, and there's 185,000 troops outside, and the men would look at their wives and their children. Are we, are we going to die tonight? Are we going to die tomorrow? The wife would look at the husband and the kids, and the kids would look, and you just carried on for your particular situation. Everyone's terrified for their future, and then in one night, they wake up the next morning and the entire army has been destroyed by Angel Bob. We're not even talking about an archangel. We're not talking Michael. We're not talking Gabriel. We're just talking Alex the angel. Bob, Jim, you throw the John, throw in the most common names related to it, and God just comes in and, and uh, wipes all of it out. And so this is a... Uh, a, a description of the praise that followed that great event. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. So the report of this great victory, not, oh, imagine how the news spread. Here they wake up in the morning and then news is going in all directions. The destruction of the Assyrian army so it traveled through Judah. It went up into the north, into Israel. In Salem, which is a name for Jerusalem, also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion, where he broke the arrows uh, of the bow and the shield and the sword of battle. In other words, God made the weapons of the Assyrian army useless. We're going to see in just a, 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 down in verse 6. We might get there next week. But they come with chariots and they come with horses and they've got all of the latest military equipment and all of these, these things. They've got drones. They've got everything. How do you fight an angel? Even Bob the angel. How does a human being kill an angel and stop him? 
Obviously, they couldn't, and no one could. And so they weren't, they weren't even, their weapons were made useless. And then there's the description of the victory. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, poetic language for dying. And none of the, of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. I mean, they didn't even know how to fight in a battle like that. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and the horse were cast into a dead sleep. And, and then not only was the, this victory a defeat of the wicked, but also it led to the deliverance of the oppressed, the righteous in Israel. You yourself are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence, the psalmist says to God, when once you, were ang- you are angry, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all of the oppressed of the earth. And so this uh, great uh, thanksgiving for the deliverance of the common man because of this defeat of God. And then in verse 10, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the, rem- with the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. In other words, wicked men are no match for God. They're no match for Him. God's not on His heels. God's not running. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He's just waiting for His timing to address it. He's giving space to repent. How many people, I mean, we hear the testimony all the time, the last person in the world you think is going to get saved, the most, you know, depraved, demonic, disgusting human being in the whole wide world. And then, you know, you meet them at Thanksgiving and there they are saved. Half the family wishes they were back the other way instead of bringing conviction to their life of how God can change a life. But God gives space to repent because a lot of people are still evidently going to be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles aren't in. I'm glad he didn't come in 1979 because I got saved in 1980. (laughs) So I'd like him to wrap the whole thing up this year because I'm saved. I'm terribly selfish. But who's he going to save in the remainder of this year? And going to save in the coming year if he decides to tarry. And so these are in his hands, but he has the ability to make the wrath of man, even the wrath of man, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, praise him and to make it serve his sovereign providential purposes, to make it serve his purposes for human history. They will work everything together for good. Think about examples of that. I I love the verse so much I have to pause for a moment. Did I read that to you? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Example of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Those brothers of his, I mean what they did. Oh, that's a lot worse than throwing someone off the bunk bed. Or doing the kind of things that we do to one another as brothers growing up. They sold him into slavery, wanted nothing, hated his guts, told his dad that he was dead. I mean, the whole thing. And then it wasn't just his brothers, then Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, the whole mess that he was in, Joseph. And in the end, he becomes the second most powerful man in the entire world for a particular time in human history in which a famine so great would be upon the land that it would be necessary for him to be in that position to uh, maintain the survival of the tribes or the, the sons of, of, of Jacob to then become the nation of Israel and the provider of the world of of the Scriptures and the Messiah. And God took and He worked all of that together for good. I think about Daniel. 
thrown in that lion's den <laughs> and uh, set up for just for being a righteous person and all Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and uh, thrown into that fiery furnace. And what did God do? He just overruled it in his providence. He made the wickedness of man to praise him. Nebuchadnezzar looks in there. Didn't I just throw three men into the fire or ordered them to be thrown into the fire? But there's four of them, and the fourth is like unto the Son of God. So that God overrules it to impact Nebuchadnezzar. I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Let me read it to you. You'll get the connection immediately. But it brings it New Testament for us. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, talking about his imprisonment, they've actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And what then? How do I see it? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. And he just looked how here's this unfair thing that was done to the Apostle Paul, but he sees the providence of God. He will make the wrath of man to praise him. God has the ability to do that. Greatest example in all of Scripture and all of human history the cross of Calvary, where the wrath and the wickedness of both Jew and Gentile came together in the crucifixion, the murder, the cold-blooded, unjust murder of the Son of God, united together. The wrath of man has never been uglier in human history than how it was manifested in the treatment of the Son of God on that day. And yet, what did God do? He made the wrath of man to praise Him because He took that same cross and through the death of that same Son of His provided salvation to mankind through that. And if Jesus can overwhelm the cross of Calvary in His sovereignty and His almightiness, in His providence, and make it to praise Him, then He can do the same thing related to any circumstance in our lives. And it's just important to stop and pull back and say, Lord, I be- I'm thinking of You as way too small. I'm the object of the wrath of man or the wrath of the devil or the wrath of whatever. But I believe and I profess that you are greater than all of that, and not only greater than all of that, but you are going to work this together for good, and you're going to make it to the praise of the glory of your grace. And that's, that's a faith that's worthy of God, worthy of a child of God, and what the psalmist is wanting to bring out in, in all of this. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Uh, let all, those, all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. So no doubt when they were in Jerusalem, there were a lot of people saying, God, if you get us out of this, God, if you defeat this army, God, if you spare our lives in some way, I will do this, I will give you this. And the psalmist said, now that it's happened, remember to pay your vows. Not because God needed the grain or God needed some money or he needed those kind of things, but the word was given and they needed to keep their word. Interesting, in the New Testament, the Bible actually discourages us from making those kind of vows and, and, and just uh, tells us, uh, don't make those kind of promises to God. Uh, let God do what He's going to do. You don't have to buy Him or, or load the, you know, the deck in any kind of a way at all. He's, you can't make Him more for you than you, He already is. And, and so when He does what He does, then you go ahead and praise Him however you see fit. But you don't need to obligate yourself in that way. But they had done, and the Bible does teach us, that if we make a vow, then we are to keep it. But there's no need to make vows. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings 
of the earth. And so the Lord is able to take and and uh, overrule even the most powerful people in the world and to make them to serve his purposes. And so uh, the, this psalm uh, really brings forth the Lord as a warrior, uh, a warrior who is able to make even the wrath of man to praise him. And so there's a, a place of peace in recognizing that, whether we're in spiritual warfare or whatever it might be, difficulty to realize, hey, my God is a warrior. My God is bigger than all of this. And he knows how to take care of himself. And he also knows how to take care of me. Psalm 77, and beautiful psalm that is an encouragement uh, speaks of the encouragement that is found in remembering. So as we get a little bit older, <laughs> we lose a little aspect of uh, encouragement because we can't remember that much. So we have to sit down and really uh, think it through. So the psalmist begins with uh, really laying out his anguish. He's in a very, very deep trial. And uh, notice he says, I cried out to the Lord with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. And so as we just read through this a little bit, get a feel for where he is emotionally, get a feel for where he is mentally. He's in a very, um, he's ready to crack. He's in a really tough place. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place where um, God says he will never give us uh, more than we are able to bear, Uh, but he'll give us more than we think we can bear. And I remember one time in my life, it was, oh, it's been uh, 10, 11 years ago now, that he took me to a place where the situation was so difficult emotionally, so difficult mentally, there's a little bit of mental illness that runs through my family. It runs through your family too, but it's pretty uh, pronounced and overt in my family. And um, where, you know... Uh, somebody that I love very much in my family, just somewhere in her life, she just, life took her uh, an inch too far. And uh, she never quite got back from that. And it broke her mind. And when you, and I remember sitting up in my office, right in this office, this building at the time, the building was, just brand new, we'd moved into it. A lot of pressure, a lot going on at that time. And I remember uh, looking out the window toward the west, and I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I think this is my limit here. I think if, you, if, if, this, if I go one more inch in this direction, I don't have the confidence that I will maintain my ability to think, and I think I can go into that land and never get back from it. That's a scary place. That's a weird kind of place to be. Now, I was concerned for myself. God wasn't concerned at all because he's living inside of me and he knows what resources he's going to bring to my life. But only to say that this kind of a situation can be real in our lives. And so here he is. He's he's absolutely overwhelmed mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, And with his voice, he cries out to the Lord. He said in verse 2, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. And so he is uh, uh, crying out to the Lord in prayer. He's got his hands lifted up to the Lord all night in prayer. He's seeking the Lord. My soul, he's emotionally, my soul uh, refused to be comforted. Emotionally, he's overwhelmed. I remembered God and was troubled. He couldn't find any peace, even in thoughts uh, of, of God. Even thoughts of God left him troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. So mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he's about ready to crack up. He said, you hold my eyelids open. And so he can't get any sleep. In the middle of all of this, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. In other words, he just couldn't put into words how difficult the trial was for him. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song 
in the night. And so he looked fondly back on uh, earlier in his walk with God when everything was just filled, his, his Christian life, so to speak, was filled with joy and with praise, and he longs for that. He knows that's real. He knows that's a part of his history, but he's very, very far away from it. Uh, right now. And there's no indication that he's in this trial uh, of his doing in any way. He said, I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. And so he's racking his brain in an attempt to find. And this is what so often we do. Not always, but some of us, we find ourselves in that kind of a problem and we automatically think that it's us. It's something wrong with us. And so we begin to rack our brains in order to find out, okay, this, what has changed in my life or what have I done different from when I was this over here and what I am now over here? We're going to try and figure it out on our own, uh, independent uh, of, of prayer. And so he begins to attempt to do that. And it's actually very, very valuable in verses 7, 8, and 9 because it's recorded for us kind of the misguided speculations that he comes up with. He comes up with some ideas that it must be this, it must be that. And uh, kind of like Job and his friends uh, did, they're going to figure out God and what's going on in my life based upon the natural mind and, and be a million miles away from the true answer. And so he states all of this, his uh, kind of... Uh, natural speculations. He states it in the form of six questions. He says, will the Lord cast me off forever? In other words, he, he feels like God has, is finished with him for some unknown reason that God isn't revealing to him. And will he be favorable to me no more? And he feels like God's love has run out uh, for him. I mean, this is legitimate. These are the things that people think about when they find themselves in this place. Has his mercy ceased forever? And uh, has his promise failed forevermore? Is he not keeping his promises to me anymore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he run out of grace for me? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And so has God stopped loving me now? In, in this situation. God's angry with me. He doesn't love me anymore. And so again, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, he is at rock bottom. And you just stop. I mean, the, the answer to all of it is the rest of the psalm. But before we get to the answer of that, I think there's a valuable lesson here. I think one sure way to make a already hard situation harder. And, and as a Christian, we're not exempted from hardship in this world. It's a, it just about surprises us every time. <laughs> and that we have to be reminded of that. But one of the tendencies we have is to take that hardship and then to personalize it and assume that somehow this represents God's attitude toward me. And it must mean that God is against me. It must mean that God doesn't love me like he loved me when everything was going smoothly and everything was going great. And it must mean that God is through with me. And we start to take these absolutely wild stabs in the dark in an attempt to figure out uh, things within very, very severe limitations of our, our mind and what we know. And that might be one or two of us here tonight. Some of us just automatically think the very worst when something terrible happens. And the first thing we do is we personalize it. We make it about us. That somehow it's a reflection upon us. And it's a great, great mistake. And then the second thing we do is we try to figure it out on our own apart from prayer. And if you find yourself in that place tonight, God has a great passage for you in His Word. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, which includes prayer, and He shall direct your path. It's not the end for you. 
is just a place on the path. And God's going to keep you moving forward down that path. So here he is. He's this mental, emotional, physical, spiritual wreck. What pulls him out of this nosedive? And the solution is found in verses 10 uh, through the end of the chapter. And the solution is he gets pulled out of the despair by remembering God's past works of power and wonder and the history of the nation of Israel. And as he goes back and he remembers thinking, he sets his mind on the history that they have of God's power and and of his wonderful works uh, in, in the nation, there comes this kind of a fresh realization that this season of trouble that he is in is not because God lacks the power to deliver him from it. Now, that's a scary thing. If we ever find ourselves in that kind of a trial and we begin to doubt God's ability to deliver us from that trial, wow, now we really are in a free fall. And when he stops and he begins to remember his history with God, their history with God, it takes that off of the table. And so in any situation that we find ourselves in that's a difficult situation, it is not because God lacks the power to pull us up out of that situation and bring those troubles uh, to an end. It is always because God is up to something even better than doing that. Someone might say, well, I'll forgo the better for this. (laughs) I know God's up to a great thing. I'll just take getting out of this right now. Now, if you you try and make that bargain with God, how well have you done? I've done done terrible on it. Because God is interested in getting glory through our lives. And so when he doesn't deliver us out of a present hardship, it means that he is going to receive even more glory through our lives as a result of what he has in mind that's even better than that deliverance. And so he speaks and he says, and this, he said, and I said, this is my anguish. But I will remember, there's that word, it's going to be repeated over and over again. He begins to think on his history with God. I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. And then he moves from remembering to meditating. I will also meditate on all of your work. As one thing to remember, and then it's in our mind and it's out as quick as it came in, is a different thing to remember some miracle of God in our past, remember it, and then meditate on it. Chew the cud. Make it a part of our life and our relationship with God again. I mean, the... the, The great miracle that God has done in our life perhaps happened years ago, similar to the situation that we're in. And so it's got this dust on it. And so we begin to meditate on it until we feel like it was just yesterday that it happened. It's so important to meditate, not just to remember, but to really meditate, make it a part of our current relationship with the Lord. And then he said, and talk of your Deeds And so he was remembering, then he meditated, and then he verbalized, uh, spoke these things out loud to the Lord. There is something powerful, I think. I'm bringing it up every single time I run into it in the Psalms, unapologetically. There's something wonderful about speaking faith and praise and testimony to the goodness and the power of God out loud. And and I'm not talking about getting into some crazy, wild Pentecostal excess. God bless the Pentecostals, by the way. We don't have to go there where they've kind of captured that market because everybody else is like neglecting it. We have two natures. We're a little schizophrenic as Christians. We got an old nature from Adam inside of us. 
And then we got a new nature that the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives. And the old nature wants to sink under every difficulty. The old nature isn't interested in following God. The old nature isn't going to say, hip, hip, hooray, and encourage me to faith. It doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body. So somebody's got to speak up. And it's good for the new man by the Spirit of God, in the situation, to begin to speak out. God, I remember when you did this. God, I remember when you did that. God, I know you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I give you praise right now for who you are, whatever my circumstances are. And sometimes we don't have another person to counsel us in a difficult situation. We have to become our own counselor, and it's good to speak it out loud. Try it. You might like it. It works. It's powerful stuff. And he verbalized these words of faith in talking of the Lord's deeds. And then he said, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Sons of Jacob and Joseph refers to the whole nation of Israel. They were birthed out of Jacob's loins. They were the sons of of. Uh, Jacob. And so what he's remembering back and he's praising the Lord specifically for talks about being redeemed there in verse 15 is God's redeeming or deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And then he describes the uh, great miracle. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and were afraid. Talking about crossing the Red Sea. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about, probably lightning. So there's more than just the parting of the Red Sea. There was a lot of natural phenomenon that was going on around that miracle. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You did this miracle, but nobody could see you physically present. And so speaking of this great miracle of their deliverance from the bondage of, of Egypt... And then in verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, speaking then of God's miracles, all of his faithfulness to the children of Israel and leading them not only out of Egypt, but then leading them to uh, the border of, of the promised land. And, and so one of the lessons of the passage is it's so important when we're facing some new trial to just take some time to meditate upon God's faithfulness to us in the past. It not only helps bring perspective to our lives, but a return of joy and a return of praise. And God intends us to be a powerful lesson. That's why the whole before and after the psalm is so strong. It's just like we're getting ready to check Asaph into a state hospital. I mean, with all due respect, at the beginning of the psalm, And he ends the psalm praising the Lord. And the whole idea is to get our attention to realize this is how powerful and important it is that we do not forget our history with God. Now, how does it apply to us? When he speaks of the miracle of being redeemed from Egypt, that speaks of our salvation experience when God delivered us from the bondage of this world to become saved. And then when it talks about being uh, here being led like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron to the border of the promised land, that's talking about the early days and weeks and months of our Christian life. It's an interesting thing. When you uh, think, when we think about, well, okay, what miracle has happened in my life and, and trying to reach back and think about the miracles, 
Think about, the, I mean, the greatest miracle that has ever happened in your life, will ever happen in your life, is in your past tense, when God saved you. When God brought you out of darkness and into His light, brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into His kingdom, the change that occurred in your life, That's the greatest miracle that God does in the whole wide world every single day. That's your miracle. There's no other explanation. I'm not angry at you. I'm just excited about all of this. There's no other explanation for the change in our life than the greatness of that miracle. And then think about all of the miracles He did. From day one when you were saved, 24 24 hours old as a Christian until the day. But think about those early days and weeks. All of the miracles that God did to protect our faith and nurture our faith to bring us to the relationship we have with God today. We all have a lot to look back on. A lot of miracles to reflect on and to think about at the very beginning of our Christian life that will then produce this kind of faith and praise in the Lord and bring us up out of this kind uh, of a pit. And so these are the miracles. We have a history with God, and the psalmist is saying, let's remember it, let's meditate on it, let's talk of it. And that's the power of remembering God's past miracles in our lives. It's able to even pull us up out of this kind of a fragileness. Well, let's stand together now.